morning. Uh, I'm glad that I'm, I'm, I love that I get to do that. This morning is a weird sermon, so I'm going to give you uh, what my hope is for this sermon. I don't know if I land that plane exactly, but here's my hope. My sermon is not meant to be depressing. What a sell. What a sell. It's not meant to be depressing. The goal of my sermon is to, in some way, name the, that weird quirk about redemption. And my goal is, like, name a thing that I think, if you, especially if you've been here for a long time, you all probably have felt it, but you haven't really been able to put your finger on it. And my hope is, in some way, to, like, kind of put my finger on that quirk and maybe name it for us this morning and maybe we can kind of experience it together. And if you're new here, um, I, I think this is, a, this is at least how I've experienced it. This is a quirk about redemption um, that uh, you might find out <laughs> if you stick around long enough. So my goal is, it's not to be depressing, but it is to kind of name something that I think is a, is a quirk of, of redemption. Okay, what a sell. Here we go. Um, this is, we are in the sermon series of quirks, and this is a little a collection of sermons about these like, little quirks that make us who we are. And this morning we're going to be discussing the way redemption understands Christian practice. Christian practice. And the text we're going to be reading this morning is Isaiah 6. But before we do, I, I have to confess with you, and it's also the, the reason I, I chose the text is because... Uh, I have a bit of a history with this, with this little section, Isaiah 6. How many of you as children have ever been scared of the Bible? Something, you read a story, and it kind of like, it kind of scared you. You're like, wait, that's in the Bible? You know, what's happening here? Um, it's, a, it's a story that maybe got under your skin for some reason as an adult or as a kid. I, I don't think horror the, is a literary genre in the Bible, but... Uh, I might be wrong, I'm not, necess- I'm not an expert here, but there are some stories in the Bible that are very disturbing and are a little bit horrifying. And Isaiah 6 was exactly that story for me. So before we read it, I asked a few people what stories scared them as kids, and here are some of the responses. Um, I asked my mother, and she said, nothing scared me, but something scared your father. Like, I love that, just... Totally outs my dad. Uh, he, she said that uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac bothered him. When you were young, you were, in the, you were in a play at church, and he was Abraham, and you were Isaac, and uh, he held the knife up over you. And, in the, and it was a play, and he said that it bothered him as an adult. It like, really bothered him. A friend of mine said, Joseph, family turning on you really, really bothered him. My wife said, the sheep and the goats. So basically anything to do with wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, and Joe Overholt, our preschool director, said, leprosy really bothers her kids. It, it really it creeps them out. Well, mine was this text. Let's read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And this is the part that, that's, this is the part that terrified me. And I remember praying to God, like, as a kid, in my dark bedroom, God, I, I really want to serve you, God, but please, 
don't ever give me a vision. <laughs> Never come visit me with an angel, with all like the eyes and the wings. It was all way too much. And I was terrified because I, I really like took this, the stories to heart that God was going to visit me in the night, like in my closet. Lights would start coming out of my closet. And I was like, please, Lord, do not do this. <laughs> Verse 3. And they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled full, the earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So my natural reaction to the text was to be afraid of God, right? Obviously, I mean, you see this, you read this text, and you think to yourself, God is creating this fear, right? The fear is coming from God. God's like, boom, and Isaiah's like, okay. And my, pa- and my pastor growing up, you know, or I don't remember if my, it was actually a pastor at my school uh, said that, yeah, the text is about God needs, is, is to be feared. And, and I definitely took that to heart. I was like, God, I'll serve you. Just don't ever talk to me. Don't ever communicate with me. <laughs> but let's keep reading. Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. You notice something interesting about the text. Isaiah never really mentions that he's afraid of God. He never mentions that he's afraid of the angel. In some way you would think, I mean, it doesn't mean he's not afraid, but it just means that he didn't run from the seraphim when the seraphim came to him, and when it came, when it came closer, and he didn't cower in fear at the sight of God. Instead, what does the text say? Verse 5, Isaiah's experience of the moment is, Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The text here is actually doing a, a thing that we're going to talk about this morning. It, the text, God seems to open up space, and at the sight of this, this vision, Isaiah's walls, his defenses, crumble. I'm sure that was a, that was a fear experience. Interestingly, it seems... You know, I made up a part, I kind of in my head, in like head canon, made up the part of Isaiah being afraid of God. I filled the text in some way with my own fears of God. Isaiah instead seems to immediately become aware of his body. He notices like his unclean lips. And he immediately feels shame or regret. The fear is not necessarily of God. It's like I, I feel shame and re- regret or from God. He's afraid and he's having this experience of guilt. He opens up, God opens up the space. Isaiah is afraid, but not necessarily of God. He's afraid of his own baggage, his own ghosts. He's afraid of what's haunting him. And this morning, our sermon is about the connections between fear and Christian practice. Weird combination. But ultimately, it is about those moments where we find ourselves in a space that has crumbled our walls and leaves us feeling vulnerable and, as Isaiah says, ruined. Fun, huh? All right. So let's get the nerdy stuff out of the way. We need to do this. All right. 
So last week, Tim discussed belief. He mentioned that Christianity is not a belief system. Christianity is a new way of being human in the world. I have floated this line to your students. Christianity is not a belief system. It's a new way of being human in the world. And they look at me like, what did you just say exactly? Like, what are you talking about? And this idea of of Christianity as a a new way of being human, being is a word that's kind of so foreign to us. We're kind of circling back back around to it for another week just to kind of revisit it. But this time, we're talking about Christian practice. So there is Christian orthodoxy and Christian orthopraxy. And we're discussing Christian practice, in other words, Christian uh, orthopraxy, and what role it takes in shaping this new way of being human. Okay? Everyone with me? There's going to be a little bit of exposition here, so I will do that quite a bit. You with me? You tracking with me? Maybe that's the youth ministry in me. I don't know. We'll see. So, theology nerd people. Traditionally, there are two aspects of religion, as we mentioned. One is orthodoxy. The other is orthopraxy. Orthodoxy means right belief, and orthopraxy means right practice. And religions all have particular beliefs and particular practices. Christianity is no different than that, than those, and then no different in that sense. But as Tim mentioned last week, during the Enlightenment, what was a temptation all along finally kind of like took hold. And Christianity became about a belief system. And I submit to you, in in that process, it weaponized practices. It weaponized practices to defend and to prop up the belief system. Those practices were not used to shape a new way of being human, but rather they were co-opted to enforce behavior modification and subjugation. That's a completely different sermon. If you'd like to go read black theologians, they have some thoughts about this. So what is belief in practice and why is it so important? To begin our conversation, I think it's important to uh, find a starting point to discuss belief in practice. Where are, the concept, where are these concepts located exactly? Like, where do we start? What do I mean by this? So, for centuries, the West has believed that the mind, the mind is the translator of reality. And you'll notice I immediately just kind of pointed up to my head. That'll be important here in a second. The mind is the translator of reality. We experience reality through our minds, right? A mind, a mind is different from a brain. A brain is a part of the body, right? However, traditionally, we assume the mind, the mind is, is uh, separate from the body. It's separate from the brain. And we might not consciously think that. You might be thinking, no, I don't actually think that. But if you watch enough science fiction movies culturally, you can tell that we have this strange assumption that we can separate our consciousness from our bodies. And throughout time, there has been this slide, this strange movement to believe that everything that makes you you is actually located, if it's located anywhere physically, it's located inside your brain. Psychologists, sociologists, neurobiologists are now telling us actually the idea that our self is located just like in our brains is just simply too reductive of a statement. It just, it almost is not helpful at all. Even though we kind of culturally believe this. And the outcome of this belief is that our brains have become the most important thing that, that make us about us. And everything about the rest of our body is pretty optional. And here's the weird part. We're beginning to discover that our minds, our consciousness, our consciousness, our self is not divisible at all from our brains. It's, and it's simply wrong to say that, this is weird, but 
it's wrong to simply say that our minds are located in our brains, but what we are discovering, or maybe rediscovering, is that the body, which includes the brain, everyone tracking with me? The body, which includes the brain, our fingers, our feet, our legs, our organs, are all the home of the mind, our consciousness. It's, okay, so, blah, blah, what do I mean? Let's pretend that you take my brain and download all of the data in my brain and then upload it into a computer. Would the computer be conscious? Would the computer be me? Neuroscience is now showing that actually, probably not. The computer would be exactly in some way what it is now. A computer with a whole lot of data. <laughs> Able to run commands, but in order to be you, you need your whole body, it's a whole system. It's all important to us. In conclusion of this little section, you need a living body to have a self. Let's just pause for a second and make a few statements about what that means. Because Christian belief and practice for a long time has reduced belief and practice down into simply an intellectual thought experiment. But what I am saying this morning is this. Your body is essential to your spirituality. Your body is essential to your mental health. Your body is essential to you. Your body is essential to belief, to practice. Your body is essential to practice. Your body is essential. Your, your proximity to others, to nature, to God, to yourself matters. When you where you place your body really matters. And this is why we're talking about practice this morning. As Tim said last week, belief is the attempt to bring our experience of life through our bodies uh, and our experience of God to speech. However, this is simply a part of how we become a new humanity, a new way of being in the world. Practice is about the body, your fingers, your eyes, the weight you're carrying in your shoulders right now as I'm talking, that dull throbbing you feel when you step back into your childhood home. The lightness you feel as you look at the ones you love and you think, I can't believe they love me back. There's a book that I find quite interesting on this topic. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. It's a pretty famous book. Um, and it has this section that I find fascinating and very help, I think quite helpful for us this morning. I'm going to read it to us. Trauma victims cannot recover until they become familiar with and befriend the sensations in their bodies. Being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of child abuse victims are tense and defensive until they find a way to relax and feel safe. In order to change people, in order to change, people need to become aware of their sensations and the way that their bodies interact with the world around them. Physical self-awareness is the first step in releasing the tyranny of the past. In my practice, I begin the process by helping my patients to first notice and then describe the feelings in their bodies. Not emotions such as anger or anxiety or fear, but the physical sensations beneath the emotions. Pressure, heat, muscular tension, tingling, caving in, feeling hollow, and so on and so on. I also work on identifying the sensations of our bodies, uh, the sensations associated with relaxation or pleasure. I help them become aware of their breath, their gestures, and movements. I love that line, the physical sensations beneath the emotions. What a line. 
the ex our existence before we go in and just like label everything. And what I love about this section of the book is that the author is giving the body its moment, its moment, reconciling the body to the mind. And before you, talk, before you talk through everything, before we think our way through it, before we come up with a bunch of beliefs, a reconnection of the body to the process of becoming whole is the body becoming whole. And so when we're talking about belief and, and practice as Christian life, often it's re relegated to a mental game in the mind. We think a lot about practices. We debate them. We discuss their effectiveness. We go round and round about their aesthetic value. So this morning, I want to give the body its moment in the discussion of what is belief and practice. What is orthodoxy and, and orthopraxy? And how does that play out here at Redemption? What does practice have to do with this new way of being human? And for the sake of my teenagers, what does that even mean? <laughs> so this little section from The Body Keeps the Score reminds us that in order to seek wholeness, we must do the work. We must do the work of reconnecting the body to the Christian life, repairing the rupture of what centuries of Christian thought has done, relegating it to a mental idea. And I submit to you that Christian practice is the way we go about reconnecting the body to our faith, to our fidelity, to our beliefs. Practice is God's gift to reconcile the body in the ongoing reconciliation of all things. Another note. Christian practice is not simply after a therapeutic ends. We don't pray to feel better. We don't tithe to get rich. We don't show up to small group or Sunday worship to be seen. Unlike sports, where there's lots of practice, Christian practice is not in place to help us win the game. Isaiah 6 reminds us that the experience, this experience of God ruins us for the sake of a new us. And this, this internal logic to Christian practice here at Redemption I, I, is a quirk. It's a quirk. And you might be thinking, okay, that sounds great, right? I agree. Wonderful, Cole. Yes. What a great sermon. God breaks us down to rebuild us. Beautiful. Wonderful. And I'm here to tell you, just stop, stop, stop for a second. Stop. Have ears to hear. Have eyes to see. The process. The work. The, life of the, the work of reconnecting the body to the self and the self to the life of God is horrifying. It's horrifying. It's not great. It's not fun. It isn't some hack to ease our fears. Christian practice and the work of reconnecting the body to the life of God is exhausting. It's troubling. And honestly, without social bonds in the life of the church, I don't know how we do it. I don't know how you do it. And what I love about redemption, when redemption talks about practice, confession, repentance, tithing, prayer, service, when redemption talks about the pursuit of wholeness, the work of reconnecting our bodies to the life of God by way of Christian practice, frankly, if you're listening closely, you will hear it in our voices. You'll hear it in people's voices around here. There is a sadness. The kids say, Cole, sometimes you're kind of depressing. <laughs> the work of pursuing wholeness is a death, full stop, in search of a resurrection. Like, 
Like a therapist sitting with someone as they're experiencing their trauma and bludgeoning their bodies over and over again. It's horrifying. Mike Flanagan is one of my favorite directors. He doesn't always make great movies or TV. Not always. But he has in the past. Uh, but he's, he's always wildly thoughtful about his art. He, I, and I, I pay attention to people who really spend a lot of time trying to layer and make things that are interesting, even if, even if it's like varying degrees of success. What is strange to me is that Flanagan is a horror director. He directs horror movies, horror TV shows. And I don't like horror. I'm not a fan. But I, I watch Flanagan's work. Flanagan and his cinema, cinematographer friend Michael Fimignari a few years back did a show called The Haunting of Hill House. And if you're even remotely into horror movies, uh, I'm sure you've probably seen this TV show. So Flanagan said in a podcast interview about The Haunting of Hill House, and in, in, in his process of creating it, he says, I see fear as an energy. It has to go somewhere. Fear must be dealt with in a film. And so here are three types of horror movies. One, the kind of horror that transfers fear in a film into nihilism. You are terrified, then you die. <laughs> and that's not my favorite kind of horror. Uh, that's like slasher movies and gore films. It's not my thing. I, I don't really like that stuff. Um, I'm sure some people can find meaning in it. I don't, but whatever. The kind of, there's a second kind. It's the kind of horror that transfers fear into triumphalism, to courage. This is like the movie Alien. Oddly, if you've seen Alien, it's a science fiction film, but it's really actually a horror film. And it's about overcoming the monster. And you, <laughs> superhero movies are actually horror movies. If you don't think so, that's fine, but I bet some of your kids were scared of some of the monsters in the show. They're like, I don't really want to watch that. It's scary. Flanagan, Flanagan is the third kind of horror. He's doing something totally different with the genre. And in the show, Haunting of Hill House, he's looking to transfer that fear into community. Think like the sixth sense. Like this kind of horror is always asking at the heart of it. Ask the ghost what it wants. How can we cooperate with it? It's not going away. We have no power over this thing. Like, let's figure out how to live with it. It's a really interesting thing. I'm not here to tell you to watch the show. It's terrifying. Let me be clear. But at the heart of it is something different in the genre. The Haunting of Hill House is one of Netflix's most famous shows. And so Flanagan and Fimignari were asked to do a lot of interviews about the process of making the show and about their unique creation and their st distinct style and approach to horror. So listening to Flanagan and the cin cinematographer talk about fear and how to create the el this element in their shows and movies is wildly important for us this morning. Here's a quote. When we filmed Hill House, we sat down and had a long conversation about the role darkness played in the show. Mike Flanagan wanted the viewer to look at the screen and understand the shape of something, but to have trouble identifying it. When you can see something, but you can't name it, it's always a bit terrifying. Love that. Second quote. When you film horror, this is from, this is from the director. When you film horror, all you have to do is clear out space, hold a shot, maybe zoom in a bit, and the viewer can't help but fill the space with their own fears. And if you ever watch this show, there'll be a character talking, blah, 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 
walk off screen and then the camera just like doesn't move, it doesn't follow the character. And it's like focused on a closet and it just starts zooming in and you're like, something's gonna come out of that closet. <laughs> it never actually does, but you fill it with your own fears. It's not, there's nothing wrong with it. So I mentioned that connecting the body to the life of God by way of Christian practice is horrifying. And what I'm saying that is, is that it was horrifying for me. When my wife and I arrived at Redemption, I remember thinking that I was walking into a church that had answers that my previous church did not. I remember thinking, this church is better. And I remember thinking I was going to be a part of a community that was doing something great, something right for this neighborhood and the city of Olathe. I remember just thinking, I want to be a part of that. And look at all the great stuff they're doing, right? That's natural. But one month into my time here, one month, I was standing with a high school student on the front, front steps right up there, talking to a member of the church who was part of the homeless community. One month in, four Sundays. And I walked inside real quick to answer a question. And I turned back, and I saw this high school student standing there looking at the man he was previously talking to lying on the ground, and his body was contorted wrong. Something was not right. And I thought, what just, what just happened? And that morning, in front of us, right before church, one of our homeless gentlemen died. Right there on the front steps, right in front of a high school student. His body collapsed because he was trying to get sober, and his system couldn't take it. And I remember talking to Jennifer and Jim Schmidt, who have, who have really given their life to being friends with homeless church members here. And I was talking to them after the ambulance came, and I was shook. I mean, like, my body, my body was numb. And I, I could understand the shape of something happening to me, but I couldn't identify what was, what was haunting me. And I was terrified. And I said something really dumb to, to Jim and Jennifer. I said, I said, I really admire the work you do. And, try, and I was like searching for a positive spin and a way out of the darkness. A way to re-narrate the pain so it didn't depress me. And they did something to me I will never forget and secretly I will never forgive them for. <laughs> they said, Cole, we are all just holding people's hands while they die. And that ruined me. To this day, practice of being in proximity to the marginalized, whoever that might be, it bludgeoned my body, and I, I still hurt thinking about that. My body became, it's becoming, it's doing it right now, it's becoming really heavy, and the wall between the body and my mind came crashing down, and all of my defenses were ruined, and all my beliefs were ruined. <laughs> And I, was, and I was filling the space with my ghosts, what was haunting me. And I remember the church. I remember this. The, the, I sat at my desk, and I was like, the church, my job, this is supposed to be built around helping people feel better, to give people answers, to serve people, to give them community, a live stream, a ministry, a friend. Here, 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 take, 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 service, service. And in one practice, in one statement, I realized I was trying to give people resurrection without the death. And redemption, this place, imploded what I thought we were doing around here. 
And all of a sudden, I was thrust into a new way of being in this church, in this neighborhood, and in this life. And then Tim came out and stood up in the front steps while the congregation was singing in the service. And Tim gave a quick prayer and said a few words to the homeless community here. And I noticed he didn't make anything better. Thanks, Tim. He just said he was with them. And I thought, of like, okay, here comes the mention of heaven and, like, God's got a plan and everything's going to be all right. And no plan, no next steps. And Tim said this. He said, hug each other. Cry. Let's pray. Let's tell stories. And he said, this is going to be a long morning. And the quirk of how redemption understands Christian practice is that Christian practice isn't there to fix your life. It isn't here to rush through the death and hack your way to transcendence. We don't, we don't pray to cure anxiety. It's, it's just too reductive. It's not there to help you build walls and scaffolding and structures for protection. Christian practice is there to ruin you. A Christian practice clears out space. And like a horror movie, <laughs> it might even zoom the camera in a bit and we fill the space with our own ghosts. Redemption doesn't get up here and say to you, tithe. If you do, God will return it to you tenfold. <laughs> no, you actually just give some money and there's an empty space in your checking account. And I bet that is horrifying for a lot of people. <laughs> Redemption doesn't pretend like contemplative practices are fun and stimulating. They are not. And if you think they are, you've been doing them for about a month or two, and keep going. <laughs> no, redemption has long periods of silence in the service. And every time people start squirming in their chairs, or I turn to talk to the person next to me. Every year we have teenagers who come up to me after Ash Wednesday and say, Station 2 asked us to contemplate our death. Why? This Sunday, your children in elementary room are in sacred space. Do you know what they're doing in there? A lot of nothing. Ask them about it. Ask them how it went. I bet a lot of them will be like, that was boring. <laughs> and every year we have people sit in the darkness for an extra 20 to 30 minutes on Good Friday after we've just spent an hour meditating on the death of Jesus. And they're just sitting there and they're crying with their face in their hands. And every time... A student sits with me and tells the truth about their life for the first time. I just see their body shaking word by word as they're just saying this thing. And I think to myself, Cole, don't fix this. Don't re-narrate it and make it positive. Don't alleviate this fear yet. Don't take away the stress. Don't name those bodily sensations. Don't fix it. Let the person's sacred body reconcile. It's happening right in front of you. And what I love about the life of Redemption Church is that a lot of times people call us depressing. And when they do that, I think, yes, I do it to myself. Like, man, sometimes I'm a little depressing. I, it, that is the old way of being crashing into a new way of being. And that's the only word I know how to, to describe it. Do we have a tendency to wallow in the darkness? Maybe. But I think, I think Redemption actually believes, I think Redemption actually believes God is reconciling all things all things to God's self. All of your body. All of your sensation. All of the experiences of your life. 
we have this radical belief that the death is sacred too. Somehow, the trauma is sacred too. The darkness, the fear, the horror is sacred too. And as terrible as it is, we give it its time. And that might make us sound depressing, but I think it makes us sound alive. And we're just holding each other's hands while we die in hopes of a resurrection. The death is the process of wrecking the walls that divide our bodies, that divide our sensations from the liberating energy of the life of God. And this sounds wonderful until it's you and your story and your ghosts and your, your horror movie. But you're not alone. Rabbi Sharon Browse has a quote in a talk at All Saints Church in Pasadena that sheds light on what Christian practice is working to do with the kinetic energy of fear that we experience. She says this. She says, religious practice is about transforming fear to love. Not courage. Not triumphalism. Not nihilism. Transforming fear into love. There are some things that happen to us or things that we have done in this life that we can talk through. That's belief. We can try to make sense of it. We see the shape of it and we can identify it. But brothers and sisters, I really think this. There are some things that have happened that we can't speak about. And there are some things that we can see the shape of but we can't identify it yet. It's too horrifying. Often those things are stored in our bodies. And we've built walls protecting our minds from the horror stories stored in our bodies. And no matter how hard we believe, we can't just seem to talk through those things. For the horror stories, we have to live through it. That's Christian practice. Living through it in a particular kind of way. Death, then resurrection. That's redemption to me. A horror movie... (laughs) that is telling the story of a community of people holding each other's hands as we die, transforming our fears into love. Let's pray. God, this morning we have given death its moment. We confess it comes for us all. God, may the resurrection of the body be gifted to us by your promise by your love. God, if we can trust you with our past, God, if we can be in fidelity to you in our present, God, may we trust you with our future. May we seek to love the world around us for your sake. May we seek to love our own stories for your sake. May we seek to love in all, in all things, reconciling all things unto you. Amen. Um, we're